Hey, I just want to give you a fair warning uh, this morning that, that we're going to be covering a lot of content. Uh, just a couple of months ago, we went through a, a, a series called Choices that was really practical and there was funny stories and that kind of stuff. Like there's none of that today, okay? No, no, no laughing at all. Uh, we're just going to be covering a lot of content. We're going to be getting into some very deep theological stuff. We're going to be all over the Bible. So for those of you guys who are good Bible navigators, you can track with me. I'll be giving the address of every scripture that we use. But the scripture will be up here on the screen, and I promise that's going to be easier for you this morning to track along on the screen. Now, uh, if you want to look these verses up after the fact, I encourage you to. I encourage you to do your own study, and they'll all, they're always up online. The video of the sermons are up online by the end of day Tuesday, early Wednesday morning, give or take. And also the sermon graphics with the scripture and all that stuff will be on, on the website. So, so feel free to do that during the week. So... Uh, before we get into this this morning, we're just going to pray, focus our minds and hearts because we've got a lot to get through this morning. So pray with me. Jesus, we invite you to speak. We, we want to see, God, uh, this thread of redemption that runs through every page of the scripture from uh, the first verse in Genesis to the last verse in Reve Revelation. From in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth to come, Lord Jesus, amen. We want to see this thread of grace, this thread of Jesus that runs through each stitch and fabric of the scripture. So God, keep our minds focused this morning. There's a lot to cover. There's a lot of content here. Keep our hearts focused this morning, and may we see you for who you truly are as we uh, get into your word today. In Christ's name, the people of God said... Amen. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you already know what I uh, just prayed a little bit about, that we've been studying God's epic redemption story from start to finish. And, and what we've seen, first of all, is that the common misunderstanding is that the Bible is a collection of stories to communicate God's moral code. You know, do this, don't do that, that kind of thing. But that's inaccurate. That's not an accurate view of the Bible. The Bible, to use our metaphor, is a written record of the beautiful tapestry that is God's gracious redemptive plan. And the common thread that runs through each stitch and fabric of that tapestry is Jesus. So two weeks ago, we started with in the beginning God created, and we saw the thread of Jesus show up in creation. He was active in creation with God and was God. And we saw Jesus show up in Genesis 3 when God promised to send his son into the world in order to restore God's shalom. You may remember that. And then last week, we saw the story of Abraham, the father, and his son Isaac as it prefigured God the Father's relationship with God the Son, Jesus. And today, we'll see our Jesus thread surface in the story of Moses. But in order to get to the story of Moses, we've got to do a little background work here. And what we're going to do is start where we left off last week with Abraham. So God's promise to Abraham, yes, it prefigured Christ, it foreshadowed Christ, but get this, God's promise to Abraham was a real promise that he really intended to fulfill, and so he did. He gave him a son, Isaac, and Isaac, Abraham's son of promise, grew up and had children of his own. Those kids were named Jacob and Esau. Now, we don't have time to get into Jacob's story in depth here, but suffice it to say that Jacob lived up to his name. Jacob's name means deceiver, or quite literally, grabber. <laughs> name your kid that, grabber. 
I can name my kid that. Grab, 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 grab. Okay, so all that deceiving and grabbing actually caught up with Jacob. And Jacob, Abraham's grandson, found himself on the banks of the river Jabbok. And his father-in-law was pursuing him from behind. And his brother Esau was pursuing him from in front. And neither of those guys were really happy with all of Jacob's deceiving and grabbing. So their pursuit of him was not to wish him a happy birthday. So Jacob is exhausted on the riverbank and collapses into a deep sleep. And that night, an angelic stranger visited Jacob and the two of them wrestled through the night. When the wrestling match concluded, Jacob emerged blessed, according to Genesis 32, 29, just as his grandfather Abraham was blessed to become the father of nations. And just as Abram received a new name when God blessed him, Jacob received a new name too. That new name was Israel. And with a new name came a new destiny. Israel would go on to have 12 sons that would become the father of, fathers of 12 tribes. And their descendants grew and they grew rapidly. By the time the nation that descended from Israel found itself enslaved in Egypt, the population was approximately one and a half million. Egyptian slavery for those one and a half million descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was unspeakable. Not only was Israel impoverished, under-resourced, and oppressed under Egyptian rule, but Egyptian rulers would set up impossible goals for the nation of Israel. Say, make bricks without straw. And of course you can't do that. And so when they couldn't do that, the Egyptian rulers would punish them and beat them. The cruelty and persecution was absolutely brutal. And so within Israel's collective conscience, a desire for a redeemer began to grow. They wanted to be rescued. And so they cried out to God for a redeemer, a sent one from God that would save them from Egyptian slavery. And God heard their prayers. Now, unfortunately, Israel's or Egypt's Pharaoh deemed that Israel's population had grown beyond his ability to oppress them and control them. And so they needed to be reduced. But Hebrew slaves were too important for the Egyptian economy. They were too important for the Egyptian empire, and he couldn't just simply release them. So Pharaoh, because he was a monster, ordered the slaughter of all newborn male Hebrew children. Did I mention that the Israelites endured unspeakable atrocities in Egyptian slavery? This was one of them. But one young mother... One brave young mom named, named Joshebed concealed her pregnancy and her newborn son. And when that newborn son was three months old, that's too old to keep your kid hidden, by the way, she built a basket out of reeds, placed her son in the basket, and placed the basket in the river. Now, Pharaoh's plan to eradicate Israel began to unravel right here because his own daughter found the basket that the baby was in. Now, I know this from experience. No dad can say no to his daughter. Pharaoh was no different. So that Hebrew baby boy became part of Egypt's most powerful family because Pharaoh's daughter said, I want to adopt the baby. Ironically, 
That one male child that Pharaoh didn't slaughter, but cared for and educated in his own home would become the redeemer that the Hebrew people were longing for. Pharaoh's daughter named her adopted son pulled from the water. Again, great baby name, young, young families, young moms. Madison, Tucker, pulled from the water, okay? But the original language is much, much better. The original language pulled from the water is this word, Moses. Moses. <laughs> Moses. Remember, though Moses was raised Egyptian, he was Hebrew by birth. He was from the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was part of Israel. So when Moses grew to be an adult and he observed the mistreatment that his people had undergone, he took matters into his own hands. He saw an Egyptian guard beating a Hebrew slave and he killed the guard and ran into the wilderness. It was there in the wilderness that God called Moses to face Pharaoh directly. Now, by this time, there was a new Pharaoh in Egypt that, get this, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house, right? So the likelihood is that this new Pharaoh in Egypt and Moses would have been raised as brothers. And God called Moses to face Pharaoh. And though Moses was terrified, and though Moses had a speech impediment, seriously, if you want to see the verse, come ask me after, I'll tell you. He trusted God and faced Pharaoh. Now, you probably aren't surprised that Pharaoh was reluctant to release over a million free laborers. So it took some convincing in the form of 10 plagues. But Moses eventually led God's people out of Egyptian bondage and toward the land that God had promised to Abraham nearly 500 years before. Moses was God's answer to Israel's cries for a redeemer. As Moses led God's people toward the promised land, God spoke once again. He led Moses up Mount Sinai and declared his promises for his people. Also, God established expectations for holiness, for worship, for moral purity, and Moses would become God's mouthpiece for his truth, a megaphone for God's truth, a prophet. He would become a mediator of the covenant between God and his people. Now, our series is called Thread. And we are discovering together the ways in which the thread of Jesus is woven through each fabric of God's redemption story. So, in order to kind of summarize and encapsulate what we know about Moses and Moses' role in God's redemption story, we've got to do that in order to kind of understand the context into which our thread appears. So let's review two critical roles that Moses played in God's redemption story. So if you're jotting down notes, here's the time to do it. Ready? Role number one for Moses is that Moses was a prophet. Moses was a prophet. But, but watch this, because this is critical now, because most of the time when we think of prophets these days, we think of future tellers, don't we? We think of people who say, okay, next Thursday, you're going to see a red car with, you know, Quebec plates, and then it's going to turn right, and it's going to, you know, whatever. And then you see that happen, you go, wow, that person is a prophet. But that was a very minuscule part, a minuscule part of what the role of the prophet was in the Old Testament. Prophets were truth 
tellers more than they were future tellers. They communicated and reinforced God's truth. So Moses specifically mediated the covenant between God and his people, and he told God's people the truth about God's character, about God's holiness, about God's expectations for them. And the Bible uses a word for those expectations, and that word is law. It's law. God communicated his law, his expectations, his, his expectations for worship and morality through Moses. And Moses was the prophet that spoke that truth to God's people. And we often think of the law, we think of the Ten Commandments, but get this, God's law extends far beyond the Ten Commandments. God's law is rigorous and comprehensive to say the very least. Moses was God's mouthpiece to communicate those expectations. Second, for God's people, Moses was the redeemer that God's people had been longing for. Moses was the redeemer that they had been longing for. Remember, for more than 400 years, God's people had been enslaved under Egypt. They had been mistreated, abused, oppressed, crying out for rescue. And Moses was God's answer. Moses brought God's people out of slavery and led them toward the land that God had promised to their father, Abraham. Now, this is going to be critical as we turn our eyes to Jesus and see our thread emerge. So we've got to cement this in our minds. Here's what we've got to cement in our minds. Moses was a prophet and a redeemer. Moses was a prophet and a redeemer. And typically on Sunday mornings when I do stuff like this, I'm like, there's not a pop quiz afterwards, but there is a quiz today, all right? So we're all going to cement this in our minds and repeat it together. Ready? Repeat this with me. Moses was a prophet and a redeemer. Say it again. Moses was a prophet and a redeemer. You sound great. Do it by yourself this time. Ready? Moses. That's right. You got it? Good. Nearly 1,500 years after Moses died, another Hebrew boy would grow up and become Rabbi Yeshua bar Joseph. We just call him Jesus. And Jesus would say this in John 4, verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. Now that's serious. 1,500 years. Moses wrote of you? Jesus? Seriously? Jesus would respond to us, yes, he did. After God rescued his people from Egyptian slavery, Moses documented the law that God had given to him in the first five books of the Bible. We still have that text today. Those books are called Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or the Pentateuch, five books. Tucked into God's law in the fifth book called Deuteronomy, Moses speaks these words over Israel 1,500 years before Jesus. Ready? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Keep reading. And the Lord said to me, this is God speaking now, God speaking, they are right in what they have spoken, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Keep going. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. What does it mean when Moses says God will raise up 
for you a prophet like me. What does it mean when God says, I will raise up a prophet like Moses? What does it mean to be a prophet like Moses? Well, here's your quiz. What was Moses' role in God's redemption story? Moses was a So in order to be a prophet like Moses, you've got to be a prophet and a redeemer, right? And remember that Moses' role as prophet was primarily truth-telling, especially as it relates to God's expectations regarding worship and moral purity. And Moses was a redeemer in that he rescued God's people from slavery. So, so if God fulfills his promise in Deuteronomy 18 and raises up a prophet like Moses, then we need to look for that prophet to do two things. One, tell the truth about God's expectations, right? Truth-telling. Number two, redeem God's people. Let's watch Jesus do both. Matthew chapter five, Matthew records what is Jesus' most famous sermon. It's commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. In that sermon, Jesus reinforces, underlines, underscores, affirms, and confirms the Mosaic law, those expectations for moral purity and worship that God had communicated through Moses. Here's what Jesus says. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven or earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. There it is, God's expectations. You with me? until all is accomplished. This is a very interesting statement that Jesus is making because when he says not an iota or a dot, he's actually referring to a real Hebrew letter called a yod. Uh, The yod is one of the smallest marks in the Hebrew alphabet. It's about the size of an apostrophe. It's interesting because when Abraham's wife's name was changed from Sarai to Sarah, the yod disappeared. Because Sarai has a yod in it, but Sarah does not. Later on down the line, Moses would mentor a young man named Oshea. His name does not have a yod. But when Moses changed that man's name from Oshea to Joshua, the yod returned. Hebrew scribes would say this, you see, not even the smallest letter can disappear from the law. Jesus is saying the same thing here. Even the most minuscule letter of the law is significant. If we were to put this in English terms today with our English alphabet, we would say this, neither the dot of an I nor the cross of a T will disappear from God's moral expectations for you and me. In other words, all of God's standards are still in play all of his expectations. God's moral code that he communicated to Moses is not like the pirate code that they talk about in Pirates of the Caribbean. Just kind of suggestions. Their expectations, their commandments, and he intends that we obey them all. Keep reading, verse 19. Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, Whoever lives up to those expectations, whoever lives out all of God's moral code and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now watch Jesus get really serious here. He says this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, unless the way you live up to God's expectations, unless that surpasses, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, have you ever been in a church service before listening to a preacher and you think that is the most 
most challenging and difficult and rude thing that preacher could have said. I want to stand up and walk out right now. If you've ever felt that, then you would be in the same boat as Jesus' audience right here. You would feel just like they felt. Because this is... This is absurd, these expectations that Jesus is placing on his audience because the scribes and the Pharisees were religious professionals. Not only did they follow every iota and every dot of the Mosaic law, they added for themselves an additional 700 rules to help them keep the law. The Pharisees and the scribes were superhero law keepers. Jesus says, you've got to be even more righteous than that to get into heaven. You've got to keep every rule. And we are a lot like Jesus' audience in that we want to pretend that God does not have high moral expectations. We say, you know what, I've kind of kept the big three. Like, I've not killed anyone, right? Thou shalt not kill, haven't done that. Thou shalt not commit adultery, haven't done that, most of us. And number three, thou shalt not steal. I haven't taken anything big at least, right? I keep the big three for the most part. But in just a few verses, Jesus would look at his audience and say, have you ever lusted? that's adultery. Or have you ever hated your brother in your heart? Well, that's, that's murder. See, God's expectations are not relaxed. And if that's you, you're a lawbreaker, and lawbreakers do not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty intense. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, wait, like if that, that's the expectation, really? Well, then no one gets in. Like if that's the standard, if the Mosaic law outlines God's expectations for getting into his heaven and none of them have been relaxed, not an iota, not a dot has has disappeared, not the dot of an I, not the cross of a T, and they're actually higher than I thought they were because God's not just concerned with my actions, he's concerned with my heart, then nobody can be saved. Now if you're thinking that, then you're in the same boat as Jesus' disciples. Because in Luke chapter 18, when Jesus communicates the exact same expectations, the disciples throw up their hands in exasperations and they say, well, well, who can be saved? Jesus, if that's the expectation, if we've got to be perfect, if we've got to be holy as God is holy, then who in the world can be saved? That's a great question. If the law is the standard, who's good enough? No one. Who can be saved? No one. But when the disciples ask who can be saved in frustration, Jesus responds, and I can just picture him with gentleness and clarity and love, leaning into his disciples and saying, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Who can be saved? Jesus says, what's impossible with you is possible with God. Why is it possible with God? The answers to two critical questions, here they are. Why is salvation possible with God? Number one, if it's impossible for man and it's possible for God, why? That's number one. Number two, how is Jesus a prophet like Moses? Both of those answers show up in Matthew 5, verse 16, right at the beginning of that passage we read just a minute ago. Jesus would communicate this. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. What is he saying to us? He's saying God's expectations are still in play. God still expects us to be moral. God still expects us to worship him in purity. I've not come to abolish those things, but watch what Jesus says. I have come, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is where Jesus is different than Moses. 
Moses was a prophet, but Jesus was God in the flesh. So while Moses communicated God's expectations, Jesus fulfilled them. Listen to that one more time for me now. Moses communicated God's expectations. Jesus fulfilled them. Moses commanded righteousness. Jesus was righteousness. And, not in my notes, he can produce it too. This is where they're different. Moses communicated God's expectations and Jesus lived up to all of them. Jesus lived the life you and I were meant to live. He fulfilled God's very high expectations. Jesus, God in the flesh, met God's entire moral standard that is outlined in the Mosaic Law. So Jesus is a prophet like Moses, according to Deuteronomy 18, in that he tells the truth about God's law, just as Moses did. Jesus communicates God's expectations, just as Moses did. Jesus does not let us off the hook in terms of righteousness. Moses didn't let anybody off the hook either. Jesus did not water down truth. He did not relax or abolish the law and the prophets, but he did what? He fulfilled them, all of it. Now watch this because this is critical. You gotta listen close. I have not met God's expectations. I was waiting for somebody to be shocked at that. I have not met God's expectations. Does that surprise you? Somebody going, no. You know, I know you. Hey, guess what? Here's the tough one to hear. You haven't either. You haven't either. And you know what? In your heart, deep in your heart, you know that. Some of you, like, you could readily admit, oh, man, I haven't lived up to God's expectations. Like, I've read some of that stuff. I ain't, I ain't done that. Some of you, it's a little bit more difficult to admit, but you know deep down in your heart that you have not met God's expectations. You try to justify, you try to weasel your way out, but you've not lived up to his expectations, and his expectations have not been relaxed. Not an iota, not a dot has disappeared. But, watch this, since I am in Christ, I am righteous before God. Because Jesus lived up to the expectations, right? And now that I've baptized into Christ, now that I've trusted him by faith, I am righteous before God. I meet all of God's expectations. In fact, I exceed God's expectations. I am righteous before him because of Christ. The $2 term that theologians and scholars use for this concept is imputed righteousness. What it means is that I have no righteousness of my own. I was unable to meet God's standards, God's expectations, but Jesus did it on my behalf and he gave or imputed to me the righteousness, uh, that righteousness when I trusted him by faith. Now, in the eyes of God, I meet every iota and every dot, every dot of every I and every cross of every T of the entire Mosaic law, not by my own merit, but only because I am in Christ. Now, as I've studied for this series, and you guys are listening probably going, man, you've studied a lot. I have, I have. I love this stuff. I love this stuff. One of the things that I've come to uh, be reminded of and even recognize is that we really love bumper sticker theology. You know what I mean by bumper sticker theology? Like we pull verses out of context, like Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope in a future. And everybody's like, I love that. I love it. 
It's in the context of the new covenant. Or we pull out verses like Galatians 2.20, which I love, for I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We talked about that verse last week. It's in the context of God talking about the new identity that he gave to Abraham and then now the new identity that we have. And we pull out verses like Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in Romans 3, Paul is talking about all of what we talked about today, that we've not met God's expectations, that we've not lived up to God's moral standard, but there is an imputed righteousness in Christ because he fulfilled the whole law. So instead of pulling out just a little bumper sticker theology, we're going to read a big passage from Romans 3, verses, uh, I think we're starting in verse 5 here. It's up here on the screen. Ready? Here we go. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. In other words, you haven't met God's expectations. It gets more serious. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, I have to make sure I pronounce that well, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Do you hear it? You have not lived up to God's expectations. Now watch. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined in misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Keep going. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now watch. So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What does that mean? The expectations are still intact. We're going we're gonna to have to be, we're going to be held accountable to how or when or why we live up to those expectations. Oh no. Oh no. But watch. But now. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That makes sense to me because I'm not living up to his expectations. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Also makes sense to me because if I read the Old Testament, I'm like, well, man, if, if that's the expectations, then I'm messed up. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Watch. But now. Slide. But now, the righteousness, the righteousness, living up to God's expectations of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's Jesus. The manifestation of God's righteousness apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, yeah, they talked about it in Deuteronomy 18 and a whole lot more. He's our common thread through all of the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's me. I get his righteousness and I have none of my own. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Didn't live up to his expectations and are justified by his grace as a gift, just as Scott talked about a minute ago, God gave us a gift in his son Jesus, keep going, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, since I'm in Christ, I'm righteous before God. In this way, Jesus is the prophet that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18. He told the truth about God's expectations. And Jesus fulfills those expectations on our behalf. This is why Paul would say in Romans 8, there's now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ. Why would I be condemned? Because I am in Christ, I am righteous before God. And did you catch our other key word in Romans 3? Did you catch it? Moses was a what? A prophet and a? 
good. Did you catch that other word in Romans 3? Paul writes this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the, say that word with me, redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now track back to Moses. Remember, what were God's people enslaved to? Egyptian tyranny, right? They needed redemption. You and I, however, were enslaved to sin. Jesus himself says so in John 8, 34. In Romans 6, in 23 verses, Paul tells us six times that we are slaves to sin. So God's people once needed redemption from Egyptian slavery, so God sent Moses. And God's people also needed redemption from enslavement to sin. And so God sent Jesus to be our redeemer, to purchase us, to buy us back out of slavery to sin for himself. So he bought us with his own blood. He purchased us with his own sacrifice. He rescued us from the sin that enslaves us. That's why Paul writes in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be what enslaved to sin jesus was our redeemer from tyranny that sin had over us moses was god's plan for rescuing his people from egyptian slavery jesus was god's plan for redeeming his people and rescuing them from the power penalty and presence of sin we have no hope for redemption outside of christ but we have been purchased redeemed bought with a price and rescued. Moses spoke God's truth, so did Jesus, but Jesus lived it, all of it. And because he lived it, he's able to redeem us from the bondage of the greatest oppressor, sin. In other words, Jesus is the greatest prophet and redeemer, greater even than Moses. Hence the reason that Hebrews 3 says this, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Keep going. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were bespoken later, what Jesus says, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we, the church, are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, I realize that today's sermon was not like super duper practical, like, you know, four quick and easy steps to save your marriage or something like that. Uh, when I preach that sermon, there's more than four steps, by the way, but here's what you need to know today. Christ himself is our hope. Christ himself is our righteousness. Christ himself lived the law of God when we could not. Christ himself rescued and redeemed us from the power of sin. Christ himself gave us his righteousness. We had none of our own. He is our rescuer. He is God's greatest prophet and redeemer. And it's the reason why we sing these words in Christ alone. My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. He's my cornerstone, my solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, 
I'll stand, appropriate for this season, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe. What gift of love and what? Righteousness. Scorned by the ones he came to save until on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin, yours and mine, on him was laid. So here, in the death of Christ, I live. As we conclude our service together this morning, we are going to celebrate that Christ is our hope, God's greatest prophet and redeemer that lived up to all of God's expectations in order to give us his righteousness and redeem us and rescue us and purchase us by his own blood. We're going to celebrate that by receiving communion together. We're going to celebrate together by taking the bread that represents the body of Christ given for us and the blood of Christ shed for us. If you know Jesus, if you've said yes to him and you know that he is your hope and righteousness, we invite you to participate in communion with us. If you've never met Jesus before, we are thrilled that you're here. We ask you to pass on this part of the service and just pass that plate by you. You're welcome to sing and reflect and meditate. We ask you to pass on this part of the service. But for those of us who know Jesus, we celebrate together in Christ alone all our hope, And righteousness is found in him. And our redemption is found in him. Let's pray together. God, as we prepare to remember, as we prepare our hearts, God, first we come and confess any known sin and just enjoy your forgiveness. We claim together, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just and you'll forgive us our sin. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, in confession, we just agree with you that what we did did not live up to your expectations. But because, God, of Christ, who did live up to your expectations, who did meet every iota and dot of the Mosaic law, we can be forgiven and cleansed from all our unrighteousness. And now we stand before you righteous in Christ. As we receive the communion elements together, God, we celebrate and remember the price that Jesus paid to redeem us and call us his own. In Christ's name, the people of God said, amen.